Hello and welcome. You've tuned in to the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. Obviously, there is a proper place that we're told to give reverence to a king or to someone who is in authority or to an elder. But here in this regard, this is only in the externals. Proverbs 24, 23 says, it's not good for you to have respect of persons. That basic spiritual principle is repeated over and over. Proverbs 28, 21, you shall have no respect of person, and respect of persons is not good. I found so many, so many Bible references, I've got to leave them off. But I want you to see over and over and over, the scripture talks about, and it's so clear that God is not partial, and he has no respect to his persons. And as our position, as a children of God, we are not to have respect to persons one to another. So let's go back to James. We've seen what James is really intending to lay out. He, James wants you to examine yourself and see that your faith is real. See that your faith is a living faith. He wants you to examine yourself and see that you are genuinely born again. You've been redeemed. You've been saved. The life of God beats within you. And if that's true, then what James is saying here again makes us look and do a little inventory on ourselves. We determine whether our faith is real. Do we have an impartial faith? So the first test, remember we talked about how you respond in trials to show whether your faith was real, and then how you respond in temptations, and then also to show that if your faith is real, that third test was how you deal with the Word of God. And that too will reveal that genuineness of your faith. But there's a fourth test. Are you partial? Are you partial to some? What's your reaction to the poor? What's your reaction to the needy? Do you show favoritism? Mark it. Every trial that comes through your life is a test. Every temptation that comes in your life is a test. Everything you hear and learn from the Word of God is a test, and for the poor and the needy who cross our paths, that becomes also a test, whether we've learned from the Word of God and that our faith is real, that we're trusting Him to take care of our needs. For we're the children of God. The life of God beats within us and within our soul. Then we will react in a measure like God, because we belong to him, and we're showing forth his nature. You know, John put it this way in 1 John 3, 16. He says, by this perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And whosoever has this world's good and sees his brother have need, and closes up his compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? You flunk the test, in other words. That's what John's saying. You can love the Lord, and if the love of God is in you, but you don't treat somebody who is in need, and you treat them disrespectfully, then is the love of God really there? 1 John 4, 10, he says, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation, that is, a covering for our sins. God is love. God has poured his love in us. And then verse 11, 
1 John 4. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And if we love one another, God dwells in us. And his love is perfected in us. So here's how people react to the test. And if we're like God, if we're favoring certain people because of their status, or their education, their money, their fame, their prestige, their looks, whatever, there's no place for favoritism in the heart of God. There's no place for favoritism in the hearts of God's people. Therefore, there's no favoritism in the church. I think it's a, it's, it's a wonderful thing. We've got Brother Sean Hendricks over in American Valley or Canyon. There we go, American Canyon. And we were able to spend some time. It's been probably a year ago and spend some time with him. And I was amazed because so many of the people there, you would not consider those to be the elite. He went out and they were finding people, maybe were bound in a wheelchair. Maybe they were not quite socially acceptable. But he went out and he's grabbing, he's looking for people, not by what they look. And I'm so thankful. And you see, because in our churches we're hurting because sometimes we want those people that are going to be able to help the church financially. They're going to be able to do this or do that. And so how we react to people is a test of our faith. If we're like God, we'll not be favoring certain people because of their status or their education or their money, their fame, their prestige, their looks, or whatever. There's no place for favoritism in God's heart. So now looking at James 2, James is going to divide this section into us in five sections. First, and we're only going to look at one, the first principle is found in verse 1, but then he speaks of the inconsistency and he speaks of then the violation. And finally, he ends up in verses 12 and 13 with an appeal. The, so the principle is the example, verse 1, the inconsistency, the violation, and the appeal. And so as we look at this, I think that this will be very, very helpful. Because he starts out, my brethren. Praise God, we've gotten all this way, and I'm finally getting to the verse. My brethren. You see... When he says that, my brother, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, literally the glory with respect to persons. Now that's the principle. So saying that I hold the faith of Jesus Christ and at the same time having respect for persons is contradictory. That's what he's saying. Now to understand the principle, you need to understand that the greatest number of early converts in the Lord's churches, in that church at Jerusalem, those people that came to Christ, most of them were poor. And if you know anything about in the New Testament, you see that that was the case. And when you read through, and when you look at our Baptist history, and actually I think it was around 178 AD, that there was a man by the name of Celsius who wrote a quite a lengthy diatribe against Christianity. And what he said, and he attacked Christianity, he said, based upon the fact that Christians were of such common, insignificant, poor people, Christianity could not mean anything. That was his basis. When we look at our brother from around France before and during the Dark Ages, before the Reformation, our Baptist forefathers, they were often called the poor people, the poor people of Lyons, 
or the poor brethren. And so that's what, how they were known because they were the simple and the poor. So they were sometimes being portrayed as uncultured, portraying them as ignorant. And so certainly that wasn't very complimentary. And it's nothing really different than what the disciples heard in Jerusalem when they were mocked. Because remember they said, aren't these uneducated Galileans? Who, who would listen to somebody like that? Do you remember that? They didn't have anything significant to contribute was the thought people were being partial. And if you were from Galilee, well, maybe that's coming like from somewhere that we don't think very highly of. So most of the church was poor. Much of the church was just common people. There were many, many common people. As a matter of fact, on the day of Pentecost, there were so many people that had come in. There were over 3,000 that were saved, and daily people were being saved. And some of those poor really didn't have anything. And so that's why we read in the book of Acts that those that had something sold what they had so that they would take care of those new converts. They would take care of those new people. And you see that in Acts chapter 2 where there are people selling their possessions, getting the money, distributing it among the poor. And chapter 4, verses 35 through 37, how the poor people in the church were being cared for because some of the people were also selling their goods, their belongings, their possessions, again, to support the poor. The church was poor. So the first big fight in the church came over the whole matter of supplying food to the poor widows. Acts chapter 6. And that's why you remember that they were, uh, they established deacons so that everybody would be taken care of without partiality. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26, do you remember how Paul defines the church in that verse? He says, you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish, the weak, the base. In other words, there aren't many mighty, there aren't many noble, there aren't many wise, they're just common people. And so now James, in chapter 2, verse 5, he said, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So you see, we cannot be looking on the outward. We cannot be looking on the... Now, some of those people in the early churches were not necessarily poor. Many of those people were not without means. Think of Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple by secrecy, but he had a, a tomb, a very beautiful tomb. And so he came, and obviously he was a wealthy man because he had this garden tomb that indicated that he had some wealth. There must have been some other very wealthy people in the church that were selling things to get money to give to the poor. They had to have had something to sell. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, it says that a great number of priests were obedient to the faith when the word of God began to be multiplied. And not all of those priests would have been poor. They may not have been of the most wealthy, and maybe they didn't have that much, but they had something that they sold their goods, like a man that came to be known as the encourager, Barnabas. 
They wouldn't have been the beggars of society. That's what I'm saying. In Acts chapter 8, 27, there was that wonderful conversion of a man that came under Queen Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He was a eunuch. He was the financial manager of the queen of Ethiopia. So he was not a poor man. Cornelius, remember the first Gentile that was converted in Acts chapter 10 was a centurion of the band that was known as the Italian band. So he too must have had some means for he owned a home and he had quite a number of folks that were working for him. Acts chapter 13 and 7, there was a deputy of that country, high-ranking official by the name of Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and he was not among the poor. And what about Lydia in Thessalonica? And Lydia, uh, I'm sorry, a city of Thyatira, she was selling purple there. She operated her own business. Chapter 17 of Acts, there were those like Aquila and Priscilla that had their own business like Paul. They were tent makers. All these people, and they, by the way, Aquila and Priscilla had a house large enough that the church met in their house. So not everyone was poor, but the majority were. I say all that to let you know that far and away, the vast majority of Christians had very little. So we cannot be looking at what does a person have? What do they have to give us? And we could just go on and on and look at so many, but here there were the poor saints around Macedonia, and Paul talks about them in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 28 through 30, and he talks about that they wanted to meet the needs of the brethren in Jerusalem because of a great famine. And it says that they gave out of their deep poverty until Paul had to say, no more giving, don't do any more. Now, I took you through all this trip through scriptures to point out that the early church was by majority poor, but they're interspersed through there were people that had means. But for the most part, the church was made up of common people. You see, because the Lord is looking at your life, it's important then that James points out how unlike God we are. And I'm going to close out with this thought, but we're going to pick up because he says, my brethren, my brothers. And every time that James uses that term, that particular introduction, he says, my beloved, it's because he's introducing a very significant, forceful exhortation. He's going to tell us something that we need to apply in our lives. My brethren, we cannot be looking at the outward part of a man. We need to see that every person needs Jesus Christ. We're going to pick up because I want to share with you the beautiful verses that this carries, the very practical aspect. And I don't want you to forget between this week and next week how important it is that we take on the characteristics of our God who is not a respecter of persons, that our God looks at your life. He looks at your heart. He is not worried about how much money you have in the bank or what you don't have. He is not concerned with the kind of clothes that you wear. He is not concerned with the kind of car that you drive or the education that you've had or lack of education. All of those are inconsequential. What's consequential to our Lord is do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you been born again? 
And are you now that missionary? Are you carrying out the work and the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ? It was those poor brethren in Jerusalem that were interspersed throughout the world. They went everywhere preaching the gospel. That is our job today. Child of God, it's our job today. And even though we keep social distance, that doesn't mean that we cannot share the gospel. It does not mean that we cannot tell people because we've got to recognize that they have a need for Jesus Christ in their life. I'm so glad we had a discussion this past week. I'm so glad that men in prison recognize because everything that they've had was taken from them. Whether they had a degree, they don't care. Whether they had great homes or no homes, they don't care in prison. All those men recognized was that they needed Jesus Christ. They'd been told by a judge, you're no good, you're guilty. They know they're guilty. But you know what, people in the free society don't know that they are without. They think, well, I've got a good job, I've got a house, I've got this, I've got that. And, and so now people don't recognize that they need Jesus Christ because you think, I'm doing well, I'm blessed, I'm happy, I've got what I need. And they don't recognize that God doesn't care about what you have, He cares about who you are. Do you know Christ as Lord and Savior? He cares about where you stand. So sad that in our society, people are no longer looking for that which meets the real need, Jesus Christ. Child of God, we cannot be partial. We cannot say, well, this one's okay, that one, we really don't want them here. We want to be inclusive of all because all of us are in the same condition. We're all lost without Christ. There's none who do right. There's none who do good. But you need Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're listening today, you're a child of God, and you're saying, you know what, I recognize I've been showing, I like this person a little more. I, I, I've been looking at this person because of, I like how they dress, I like how they act, I like the words that they say. And we disregard others who maybe are kind of, they don't quite fit in. They don't fit our standards. You see, God doesn't look at our standards. He looks at the heart. He looks at the soul. Do they need Christ as Lord and Savior? We need to begin to see beyond, just as our God. We've seen how great He is in His love and His mercy and His kindness and His omnipotence and His unchangeability, His immutability. We've seen all this in God. But do we see that God is impartial? He doesn't love you because of what you have. He loves you because you need Christ in your life. He doesn't love you because what you don't have or what you or, or maybe feel like you're lacking. He loves you because Christ died for you also so that you could have eternal life. Let's just close out in prayer. And I hope that if you're listening today, you'll be moved to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you know Christ and say, as your Savior, that you'll be recognizing that every person around us needs Jesus Christ, no matter what they look like. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions or perhaps you have questions on a different topic, let us know. Our information is given 
on the website or you can reach us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. On the tombstone said he is risen just as he said. Quickly now go tell his disciples that Jesus Christ is risen.